0: Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. We're going to be talking about corn lodging on today's show. And by lodging, I mean falling over. Yep. It's gotten worse and worse the last few years driving across the Midwest. I just see more cornfields going down. And we want to talk about this today before a lot of the corn goes in the ground, at least in the upper Midwest. Maybe there are some things you could look at to try to prevent this problem on your farm. So we'll discuss that on today's program. We'll also be taking your calls and agronomic questions throughout at 844-44-AG-PHD. And you can email us radio at agphd.com. Got some interesting questions that have already come in today in the Ag PhD mailbag. So it'll be fun trying to dig into some of those, including uh, a, a few really, really unusual soil tests that It should be interesting to talk about, especially considering where they came from. All right, let's start off, though, talking corn lodging a little bit. And when you have a field of corn that either root lodges or stalk lodges or green snaps or uh, the wind just blows everything over, who do you call? Who's your first call? We often talk about it on our show. When we ask farmers this, about 9 out of 10 farmers will say, my first call is to the seed dealer. And we say, okay, why did you call the seed dealer? Well, because not every field blew down to the same degree. And almost always, when there's more than one hybrid in a field, one blows over more than another. So it must have something to do with that hybrid. And so that's, that's the reason that most will use. And, and I would bet you'd probably agree with that thinking. I, I've sure heard it a lot. So I was talking to an agronomist down in Nebraska, and he was working for a a seed company. And one year, uh, he said all the competitor's stuff went down, his stood like trees, and the next year, he doubled his business. And he's really excited about this. And then that year, his stuff blew down, and the competitors didn't. (laughs) The same numbers. And I said, okay, what did you learn out of that? That one year your numbers are wonderful. And the next year they're the ones that blew down. And he said, you know, he goes, it's really the timing. And I just happened to be a little different growth stage. I was susceptible. The other guy wasn't, or I was a little bit ahead. Maybe I was a growth stage ahead. And that year it caught me, the year before it didn't. And it, it was interesting because he's been doing it for a long time and he made the comment, yep, I, I just always know if I go to look at a field that, that one of my customers has that's blown down for one reason or another, it's not the seed's fault. Next year it could be the exact opposite way with the exact same hybrids. And I, I have seen that too. And I would say this, generally speaking, there isn't just one cause. It's not just... Well, it's just the hybrid and that's it. There's nothing else with the environment or anything that has to contribute to that. And it, it just seems to be a number of factors almost every time we go places. There's a agronomist I was talking with in Minnesota last summer, or well, actually last fall, and I just asked him about things in the... You know, over the season, what did he see? Because it seemed like there was an awful lot of corn land down in Minnesota, and he said, first of all, we had Fusarium crown rot, and he said, yes, we had some issues with root worms and and other things, but he said, almost every field I went to last year, one of the factors was Fusarium crown rot. And nobody was talking about that. Everybody was looking at, uh, well, what kind of seed did you have? And did you have enough fertilizer? And, and was there a corn rootworm problem? But nobody was talking about this fusarium crown rot, he said, and I was seeing it in pretty much every field. We, we were talking to plant pathologists down at University of Nebraska on our show here within the last month or so and just asked about this fusarium crown rot. And, and the answer we got was, well, don't know enough about it yet. Don't exactly know why 2021 was as bad as it was, but it's certainly something that's fueling a lot more research work this year and that, you know what, just because we saw it last year doesn't mean this year is going to be bad. It also doesn't mean this year couldn't be worse. So we really don't know on that one. And, and that's pretty hard when you've got something that you can't manage for. So we'll, we'll talk about that just a little bit, and then we'll work on some things that we can manage. So with fusarium crown rot, there was some difference between hybrids. Talk to your seed provider about that and see, okay, which ones held up better? Which ones did you not see fusarium in? Varietal tolerance differences were, were evident. Uh, let's talk about the things that you can manage here, too. First of all, corn rootworm. It was a big year for corn rootworm in many corn growing areas last year. You can certainly manage that with a Smart Stacks corn, for example. Use at least two different BTs. We know there's resistance out there, and it's not going to be perfect, but it's pretty good. Then add insecticide, and we're recommending this on first-year corn. We're recommending this in corn on corn. If you've got rootworm in the area, it doesn't really care if it's a first year cornfield or not, you've got volunteer corn out in soybean fields. A lot of times that's getting killed later, and the rootworms are feeding on that and getting to the next generation. So we're seeing it in first year corn too. Um, fertility is a big deal, certainly having plenty of potassium. The real big keys are potassium, manganese, and copper. Those are the three that are most associated with stock strength. So Take a look at those three. Make sure you're up into the higher levels of fertility on those particular nutrients. And where we saw a lot of guys having problems is when nitrogen was high, but potassium was low in relation. So when we get nitrogen to potassium ratios way off, we've got all kinds of growth, but no strength. So that's that's something definitely to watch out for. And then the last point, and this is something hopefully we'll elaborate on a little bit more during the show today, is planting population. It's so fun to talk to growers about this because, oh, that can't be it, and oh, we need this population in order to make yield. Look, we often talk about this number, 7 to 10 bushels per thousand, as a good target for your farm. So if you're raising 300 bushel corn or more in the good parts of the field, yeah, you probably need a little more than 30,000 population. But if you're not hitting more than 300 bushel corn in parts of your parts of your fields you don't need any more than 30,000 population so it's something that we encourage everyone play around with a little bit this year and take a look Uh, we'll talk more about it as the show continues because we're talking about corn lodging on today's ag phd radio program stay tuned
1: what does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition This is Stormy Fields with your weather forecast. Today calls for a high of 68 degrees with sunny skies and not a cloud in sight. Planting windows can close fast, so when you need both speed and accuracy, choose John Deere. Our exact Emerge planters and precision ag technologies give you precise seed placement for uniform emergence and the efficiency you need to gain ground. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground.
2: More and more farmers are discovering the power of improved emergence with the Germinator closing system from MFG. Greg from Iowa says, For the 48 years I've farmed, I've usually been disappointed with the job my closing systems have done. This year, I was very impressed with Germinator's performance in a variety of soil conditions. For more Germinator success stories and to order a set for your planter this spring, visit FarmShopMFG.com. Are you worried about nitrogen loss this spring? Well, we asked retailers what they thought about Instinct Next Gen Nitrogen Stabilizer from Corteva Agriscience. What they said was so inspiring, we got an actor to reenact it. <clears throat> it's a great return on investment. A great return. Investment. Investment. Great return.
1: All right, I think I'm ready to record.
2: Uh-oh. It's that simple. Instinct Next Gen is a great return on investment because it protects your nitrogen. Learn more at protectnitrogen.com.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio broadcasting from the Martin studio today. We're talking about corn lodging. Everybody's excited about the corn. Well, I shouldn't say this. Everyone growing corn and planning to sell it for money is really excited about the corn pressure Now, anyone buying corn, I get it. It's a pretty expensive feed source right now, but uh, anybody raising corn and planning on selling that corn is saying, man, I got a great opportunity here to make some cash If I don't have problems. And one of the problems that we're talking about today is corn lodging. And of course, insects could potentially be involved with that. So we've got our friend Jeff Whitworth down at Kansas State to talk about that just a little bit. Jeff, how are you doing today?
3: Good. It's uh, windy and cold down here. Didn't seem much like a spring day, though.
0: No, it sure doesn't. We're, we've been getting some snow off and on today, not accumulating or anything, but just seeing snowflakes in the air kind of reminds us, you know, we're a little ways off from planting yet, but hey, do, do yeah. these big winds like this, I mean, really crazy high winds, is that going to move bugs around at this point or is there nothing up in the air to worry about?
3: Really, probably not this time of year. You know what? The things we worry about Early season mites, because that's the best way for mites to travel, especially like in wheat, you know, brown wheat mite, winter grain mites, stuff like that. So that's a consideration, but nothing else are planted, so I, I really don't think it matters that much.
0: All right. Talk to us a little bit about corn rootworm then. They, they get blamed. The corn rootworm, whether it's, it's real or not, it sure gets blamed for a lot of the corn lodging problems out there. Oh, there must have been a lot of rootworms out there. How many rootworms does it really take to, to make a corn plant fall over?
3: Well, that's a really good question, and we've been doing research on that for 20-plus years, Uh, and again, it depends on, you know, the roots, um, the root set, the moisture, all that kind of stuff. Really, if uh, in dryland corn, if you just have adequate moisture but not over an abundance, if you have five or six larvae per plant, um, they can do a pretty good number on the root system, and that's, that's where the problem comes in. You know, Corn is really good at compensating for rootworm damage, but again, you got to have the uh, moisture for the secondary root system. And what we get when we get, when we have lodging, really, we have rootworm damage. We have rootworm feeding on the roots, and then we get wind. And that way, you don't have much of a root system, and it'll push it over. If you don't have wind, um, even quite a bit of root pruning doesn't actually lead to lodging. So it's not that big a problem It's just when we have winds like we do here in the Midwest, you know, considerably uh very often in June, July. Most of our rootworm larval feeding starts in the first part of June is generally finished by the last part of June. So that's the the time that the roots are most vulnerable and the plants are most vulnerable to wind and lodging.
0: Now when it comes to rootworm hatch I know there's a lot of guidelines about, hey, if you're seeing lightning bugs, that's about the same amount of GDUs it takes for rootworms to hatch, these types of things. How, how much does it take? How much heat does it take? Is that what they're triggered by to hatch and begin their life cycle?
3: Yes. Uh, temperature controls development of all insects, period. Um, I don't know what the laboratory... Um, Designation is for number of thermal units or growing degree days uh, for eggs to hatch because they're all different. They're laid in the field. They're, they're deposited in the field in August, September, even into October, and then those temperatures accumulate from that point in time throughout the year. And I know in Kansas we count on pretty much in the last 22 years and we have records, um, the adults will come out just right around the 4th of July. Most of our adult hatches from 1 to 4 July. So they pupate the week before that. Um, and like I said, the larval feeding goes on from oh, mid-May to mid-June. But yes, they've established um, the growing degree day system or thermal accumulation system, the problem with that, each field is a little bit different. Uh, it's not like just doing it in the laboratory. We've run into that problem with alfalfa weevils, predicting alfalfa weevils and southwestern corn borers and other things. We can do it very accurately, but not actually in the field where the insects are.
0: Well, that that probably answers some of my next question was just, we saw this expanded emergence window last year, and I I couldn't hardly believe it. There were growers that were spraying for corn rootworm beetles because they thought, oh, my goodness, there's so many beetles. I'm going to go out and spray. And then, a week or two later, they'd be in another field, just thick. And I, I, I don't know, am I, am I seeing things right? Was there an expanded emergence window, and is it due to just different farming practices?
3: The adults are looking for pollen, for the most part, or green silks, and they're very mobile. So our treatment threshold for adults is if you have 50% infestation with adults. That means if you have five of uh, silks that have at least one adult, and can, in 10, that's 50% infestation. That means you need to treat for adults this year or that year in order to prevent uh, a problem in that same field for the next year for the larvae. So I'm guessing what you have... we. You don't have, you can't have an extended uh, adult emergence. But for the most part, these adults are going from one field to another field where they have green silks. As the silks turn brown, start to senesce a little bit. They're less attractive, so you find the adults moving to other fields. I would guess that's probably more what it is than extended hatch.
0: Okay. Um, e- I, I talk about doing corn rootworm digs, and it seems like most every farmer that I say that to, they say, great, come out and do it on my farm. And I say, well, why don't you just do a rootworm dig? And nobody's doing this, Jeff. Is it easy to do? How do you recommend doing a corn rootworm dig?
3: What, what do you mean, corn rootworm dig? You mean digging up roots to yes. evaluate the roots?
0: Yes. Well, um, n- not only just to evaluate roots, but just to see corn rootworm larvae. When when would you do it, and how would you do it if you wanted to see if I have larvae feeding?
3: That's a great question. We, we monitor it all the time. We start uh, as soon as the plants are at about the six-leaf stage, uh, because you have some early eggs that were um Developing from growing degree days early on, uh, and we follow it all the way until we start finding pupae or adults and it's I, I think it's fun to do. you go out and dig plants, make sure you get the roots, the little ball of roots, you bring them back, put them in a bucket of water, soak them off. the root worms float, so whether it 's the larval stage or the pupae or the adults they 'll float off so um The best way to do it is just when you get out, or maybe I should say knee-high. Anyway, when you get uh, the plants are, you know, 10 to 12 leaf stage, go out and start digging. Make sure you get the ball of roots, uh, the ball of soil around the roots because that's where they are. And then you soak them because if they're inside the roots, they're hard to find, but they will come out and they will float. So what we usually do is dig a whole bunch of plants, come back and put them in, um, you know, little kitty wading pools and soak them for an hour or so and then come back and uh, sit down and go through and pick out the larvae or the adults. That way you'll know what stage they're in and how many there are and however many plants you dug up.
0: Yeah, the other thing I like to do, Jeff, is I like to go in soybean fields and dig up the volunteer corn plants because I see the same thing. I see a lot of rootworm larvae there looking for a home, looking for something to feed on. So yeah, it's 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 a fun thing to look at. It's sad when you find them, especially if they're in your own field. We're talking with Jeff Whitworth here with Kansas State University. Jeff, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. Good luck here as you start getting working on uh, on research and bugs for 2022.
3: My pleasure. Thank you very much. you
0: listening to Ag PhD Radio. Uh, we're talking about corn rootworm as a potential part of the corn lodging situation. We were just talking with Jeff Whitworth, who works down at Kansas State University. Yeah, rootworms certainly can be part of this, and Jeff made a couple of great, well, he made a bunch of great comments, but one of them that he said was, when we are short in moisture, That's when you're going to have some more problems because the corn plant, as it's trying to put on more roots to try to make up for anything that it's lost to the corn rootworm, it it just has trouble. So, we need adequate moisture for really good growth of that corn plant. And then the other thing, when we get big winds, and I'm sure Kansas gets big wins just like we do uh, where we farm and, and probably where you farm too. When you get those big wins and you have a root system that's been compromised, you can certainly have problems. We'll talk more about corn lodging and we'll take your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Stay tuned.
1: Protect your empire. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. Low-use rate Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC combines Group 14 and Group 15 modes of action for pre-plant and pre-emergence control of key broadleaf weeds and grasses. A preventative application keeps your fields clean when it matters most to crop productivity. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions.
0: You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We are talking about a big problem that's happening in cornfields every year. Corn lodging. What's really going on out there? We were just talking with Jeff Whitworth down at Kansas State about corn rootworm and he said, you know what? Yeah, rootworm can be part of the problem, especially when you don't get much rain and that corn plant has a hard time recovering. But it's not always the problem. And generally, if you have got adequate rain, even with a little rootworm feeding, you're not seeing corn fall over on its own. So maybe we should investigate disease just a little bit. We got Marty Chilvers with us right now at Michigan State University. Marty, is it a disease problem? Is that what makes corn fall over
5: sometimes? Hey, Darren. Thanks for having me on. So it depends. It certainly can be disease. Um, And there's a couple of different angles here. I guess we can actually have a stalk rot pathogen, such as gibberella stalk rot uh, or anthracnose uh, stalk rot. Or we can see something like a foliar disease like tar spot, shut that plant down early and lead to a weakened stalk.
0: All right, there's there's a few things. What about Fusarium crown rot? We had a lot of farmers that said last year they had Fusarium crown rot. What can we do about that one?
5: Yeah, we did see more of that um, last year. Um, so that one, you know, it's, it's about managing stress um, on the plant as well. So if we're doing things like high, really high plant populations, if we have extremes in moisture that may potentially um, drive that. Um, but I guess it's important to recognize that that's a disease as well. So if we're not rotating fields, if we're corn on corn, we're going to potentially build up that inoculum pressure. And then another really important piece there is the hybrid susceptibility. Some hybrids are going to be more susceptible than others um, to fusarium crown and root rot. And, and that's you know a pretty major factor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I loved what you said there about managing stress because that really uh, with everything in crop production, if we can manage stress better, we usually have a lot more response because oftentimes it's not just one thing that leads to all these problems. It's multiple things. How about with tar spot? What do you see there? If you've got a healthy plant, you've got no other disease. Does that lessen
5: the impact of tar spot a little bit? um perhaps so i guess what i'd say to that is that you know unfortunately i've seen fields that have been taken out with tar spot and we've gone looking and we haven't seen any other you know diseases in the field uh yeah certainly though like if you do have other diseases like gray leaf spot um, or you know fusarium crown and root rot and then we have tar spot on top of that yeah you know things will be worse because we've got additional uh, stresses sort of working together to damage that corn
0: i'm kind of amazed marty that you threw tar spot out there right away i didn't even have to ask i I figured you'd be tired of answering (laughs) questions on that one by now
5: (laughs) oh i'm very tired of answering it but it's not (laughs) going away and you know we had so many lodging issues last year um you know wisconsin michigan indiana illinois just you know in sort of hot area and it's you know continuing to expand uh, we had a very, very wet season last year that saw you know, very heavy, heavy levels of tar spot in, in many of those areas.
0: OK, so on the wet years, it's probably going to be worse. What what would it take for us to avoid it? Do you, do you normally have weather conditions that you say, you know, if we had an average year here, it wouldn't be so bad or is it just something we've got to live with and manage now?
5: Yeah, well, that's a good question. So, yeah, I mean, last year was really bad. I guess what I'd say for your listeners, right, um, if they're in other areas like Minnesota, um, the Dakotas, you know, tar spot, you know, at least in Minnesota, it started to arrive, but it's not all the way across the state yet. We know it's in every county in Iowa, but we haven't had a wet year in Iowa yet. Uh, it sounded like there were some producers uh, perhaps in southeast um, or northeast um, Iowa last year that got burnt a little bit with tar spot, and that's because they had the, the presence of the disease, but they also had, you know, wetter than normal conditions. Um, so that that's really the thing to watch. If we have fairly normal uh, moisture patterns, it's not going to be as much of an issue. If we have above normal precip, particularly June through September, that's really going to drive tar spot. Any any extended leaf wetness periods. That's that's when we start, you know, running into issues. And I'm
0: talking to the corn breeders. They've they've identified. Inbreds that are more tolerant, I wouldn't say resistant, but more tolerant to tar spot than others. So we look for more hybrids coming in the next few years here mm-hmm. that will be a, a little better able to handle it. At this point, we try to pick the best hybrids we can and then manage with fungicides. Is that your recommendation?
5: Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that the first thing to do is to hassle, hassle your seed dealer. Make sure you have the best information out of them about, you know, hybrids um, that you're, you're going to select. And if you've already made that selection, hassle them again to figure out, you know, if this is my lineup. Are there any hybrids in here that are more susceptible? And if you do have some, then those are the ones you might be want to, you know, potentially consider a fungicide. Again, especially if we have a wet season.
0: Now with fungicide timing, we we find with disease, we've got to be out in front of it. We've got to be preventative rather than trying to cure things up later. And especially when tar spot can take over pretty quickly with the right conditions. Uh, What are the timings that you're seeing work well or work the best with fungicides?
5: Yeah, this is a really good question too. Um, so from multiple years of work now with um, here at Michigan State and with colleagues in, in other Great Lakes states and in the area, we tend to see that, that the, the timings at early reproductive stages, you know, green silk through to brown silk, uh, maybe a little bit past that as well, uh, tend to be far better timings than anything much earlier than that. And, and, you know, I guess I should say, too, that that was true for managing grey leaf spot, northern leaf blight, and just general um, increasing the chance of return on investment from a fungicide application. We tend to see those um, green silk or brown silk timings uh, tending to be you know far more favorable for disease management.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh... Probably enough about tar spot. I'll let you off the hook with that one. But you, you also talked about stock rats like anthracnose mm-hmm. and jib. What are you seeing with stock rats and, and what should farmers know? Because I don't get as many questions about stock rats. It's more, man, I had stock rat out there, but then I don't see the follow-up. I don't see the enthusiasm about, man, I got to find something that's going to be better on this. So I, I don't know why that is, but what should we be aware of with stock rat going into this planting season?
5: Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point of knowing really what was going on as well. So at the end of the season, yeah, it might be a bit disappointing. We might have had some stalk rot. But sending those into a diagnostic clinic or, or talking to you know, whoever your, your consultant is to follow up on that and figure out what, what was driving that stalk rot. Did you actually have a stalk rot disease or did you have heavy levels of foliar disease and, and stress that, that led to um, lodging corn? I think understanding that is really important, and if you know you have a particular problem like fusarium crown and crown and um, stalk rot, you know, trying to select hybrids that have a better resistance to that. Crop um, rotation can potentially help with that too. Um, that's something that will help you know manage that pathogen load that's in the soil. Um, so there are there are a couple of things to be thinking about, but def- definitely knowing and understanding what actually drove you know any stalk rot is, is a very important first step.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned other things like rotating crops and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, not having a ridiculous planting population, which uh, that's that's one of the big ones that I hit on. I just see more problems as we push planting populations higher and higher and higher. Uh, th- those are things that we can change with the planter right up front. Hey, are we going corn on corn? Or are we going to be into a soybean field? And are we going to plant 28,000? Are we going to plant 38,000? I, I can almost guarantee if you plant both of those two populations, which one you're going to pick going forward because there aren't too many guys getting 300 plus bushel corn. I I don't get why we got into such a high population. It just makes it tougher. Uh, We're talking with Marty Chilvers here with Michigan State, and and Marty's been so kind as to talk about tar spot one more time. Uh, And, Marty, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Appreciate the work that you're doing up there. Hopefully uh, this year growers are are watching your trials, and only tar spot shows up in your tar spot trials, not in anyone else's fields.
5: That would be good. We, we'd be we welcome that situation.
0: <laughs> All right, thanks, Marty. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, we're we're talking about corn lodging on today's show, and we're hitting on a couple of things here. Uh, Jeff Whitworth was talking about insects. Marty was talking about some of the disease things going on, uh, but we want to talk about more because because it's not just disease and insects. There are some other things that we can control on our farms. We want to get into that as the Ag PhD Radio Show continues.
6: What's new from New Farm? Longbow
1: EC Herbicide, the latest in our portfolio of versatile weed management tools, gives you another Carfentrazone option, taking aim at more than 60 broadleaf weed species. And did we mention economical?
4: Longbow EC's low use rate makes it a flexible tank mix partner with most burned down non-selective herbicides. Ask your dealer for Longbow EC, available
0: for fall. Be sure to attend the 2022 Ag PhD Field Day. At this year's Ag PhD Field Day, we'll have way more equipment and equipment demonstrations than we've ever had before. We've got a lot of new technologies we'll put into our research plots on site, and we'll have great family entertainment, including a kid's area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and free food and drinks all throughout the day. Please go to agphd.com to learn more, and don't forget to join us on Thursday, July 28th for the free Ag PhD Field
3: Day.
2: Here at Farm Shop MFG, we keep hearing from folks who've tried our germinators.
3: Yeah, I'm Wayne Bossman from down here by Park, South Dakota. And I was very impressed how uh, they came up quicker and they're just going to look like a better stand and just greener and just a little taller all, all year, as dry as it was. I think they really made a difference. Really looking forward to using them this year.
2: See more of what our fans are saying and order today for spring delivery at farmshopmfg.com.
1: Whether or not, relentless control is what you get with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Protect your season from tough broadleaf weeds and grasses with dual modes of action and overlapping residuals that also minimize resistance. With an easy to tank mix formulation and wide application window, Anthem Max Herbicide is ready when you are. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions.
0: listening to ag phd radio broadcasting from the morton studio today and our topic is corn lodging but if you have an agronomic question you'd like to ask our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD or you can email us radio at agphd.com real happy to have kellen huber on with us kellen we've been trying to make this work for a long time i'm so glad we found a time we could get together
6: well thank you, Darren. Uh, I sure appreciate being on your show today and uh, look forward to the excitement.
0: All right, well I was going to introduce you as a soil fertility specialist. Would that be a fair statement?
6: Yeah that that's a fair statement.
0: Okay. So when it comes to fertility, here's one of the things that I think on corn lodging, my brother likes to jump on, man, you must be short on potassium. I think manganese and copper are also factors in this. Where do you stand on this with corn standability and corn lodging? If you you know you've got somebody that's got a problem, what are the first things you're looking at on a soil test?
6: Well, and and getting a good soil test is the main thing, and really finding out what the nutrients, the um, soil-borne acids in the soil, really do make a difference. And you pretty much answered most of the questions already, because you said potassium, number one. A lot of fields struggle with potassium and potassium usability. The second thing that is, manganese, you know, as you were talking earlier in the program about stresses in the plant, manganese really is a factor there that really helps all plants from a stress scenario. So those are kind of the exciting ones right off the bat.
0: Well, you talk a lot about balanced fertility when we have discussions. Explain what that means to, uh, to our listeners today.
6: Well, as a soil science, balanced fertility kind of starts with five main things. For me, it's always making sure your calcium's right. Those are some key factors that always got to look at and make sure because calcium is one of the most delicate things out there. It has a specific window that it likes to play in. And we need to make sure that it's not too little or too much because it'll tie up nutrients fairly quickly. And then I just quickly fall back into a topic that you and I have talked about lots of times is sulfur we really don't use as much sulfur as we should. And then once we get those two looked after, then we come into potassium, and then we really start focusing on stuff like phosphates and then organic matters.
0: Okay, when you talk about uh, calcium, one of the things I was thinking about, I, I was just talking to a grower in western North Dakota who said, you wouldn't believe how big the cracks in the soil are on my farm. We're really dry here. And I said, I bet you're really high in magnesium. And sure enough, his magnesium percentage in his soil was too high. I don't think a lot of growers are talking about magnesium in the soil. And I just know our ground that's high magnesium, I don't get roots that penetrate and get deep into the soil. So I guess your way to talk around that topic is I'm worried about calcium. I got to make sure I got plenty of calcium. Is that accurate or is this a whole different topic?
6: No, no, you're accurate, because in beautiful Saskatchewan, we have magnesium levels that are through the roof, In um, talking with a lot of different soil people in the, in the world, and you know, Saskatchewan aligns with Kansas, high pH soils, high magnesium soils, so when you have high magnesium, we have all kinds of things that are interrupted. We've taken things like nitrogen availability, calcium availability, sulfur availability, and then it just, the list kind of goes on. So the topic of your discussion is when we're talking about lodging, we don't have as much corn up here in Saskatchewan, in Regina, Saskatchewan, as what you guys have, you know, south of the border. And one of the big things is, and I really want to get corn more up in Saskatchewan because corn loves magnesium. Okay, it it has a a real nutrient availability with corn and the cracks that we see here. um, It's not uncommon for Saskatchewan, especially in the Regina area here. We can have cracks that are 14, 18 inches deep and they'll be 20, 30, 40 feet long. And that's all a factor of high magnesium.
0: Hey, talk to us about this sulfur now too because a lot of times we'll say, all right, well sulfur is something that can help as you're trying to build calcium and hopefully lessen that magnesium percentage a little bit. But you said just in general, we're not using enough sulfur pounds to feed the sulfur needs of our crop. Is this just for corn or is it, I'm suspecting that you're saying that's for just about every crop.
6: Excellent question, Darren. Excellent question. No, sulfur isn't isn't used as much as we really need to because sulfur is you know in earlier in your conversation I'll just give you an example of your in the talk show previous you know we're talking about root rot we're talking about diseases sulfur when it converts sulfur I'll take break down elemental sulfur I'll take and convert into sulfate and into sulfuric acid and those two combinations have different um, modes of action in the soil. Sulfate sulfur is really there to help uh, to nitrogen availability, cell elongation. A lot of that has to do with sulfur and conversion. Where sulfuric acid, once breakdown down from elemental sulfur, Sulfuric acid will start targeting stuff like root rot, um, sclerotinia, a lot of those type of diseases. Um, phenomyces is a big problem up here in legumes up here in Saskatchewan and Western Canada. Same with North Dakota, Montana. Sulfur is a key factor in that.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that. that well, when when you start thinking about plant health. A lot of times growers want to talk about, uh, well, are you doing tillage or are you not? Are you using a cover crop? Not. Are you using fungicides or not? You're talking about fertility and, and soil health and plant health, and I, I love that. That's that's a great way to look at things. Uh, we're talking with Kellen Huber, who's a soil fertility expert up in Saskatchewan. Uh, Kellen, when you think about corn lodging and you say, well, we don't have a huge amount of corn up here, what do you see when you have small small grains that, that are lodging or have poor standability or your legume crops have poor standability. What are some of the, the factors that you think play into that?
6: Well, number one being is, you know, like you started off the show saying potassium, manganese, copper. The only other, the third one that I'm going to force one that I'm going to throw into that is sulfur. And so potassium is the, the product that's going to help you with broken elbow. And you know how you look on a wheat crop and you look up and you see the various joints and you you see that in the corn too. You'll see the joints as it's growing, it'll create these joints. And that's where you call green break, you know, and that is a factor of really four things. The two major things being potassium and copper, but the support program is the manganese and the sulfur. So again, you can, so many things that we can be prevented on is starting with a good soil sampling and understanding the elements in that soil. And sulfuric acid in the sulfur base, you can really work the numbers in the soil test of what the salt content is. Because one thing that we're not talking about here is salt. And with Today's high-salted fertilizer, that remains in the soil quite a bit, which robs our soils of moisture that is plant-usable. Because most of the, the uh, let's call it the corn, when it lays down, lodging, the wheat lodging, a lot of that is in usually water-droughted areas. So you're having the, um, the removal of elements like sulfur. Because they're easily erodible. So you got to watch a lot of things that are kind of going on. And it's always be, as you said earlier in the program, you know, being on top of nutrients before you see the problems.
0: And as you mentioned, taking a good. er taking a good soil sample allows you to go after those problems before they become big problems and that can certainly help you in so many ways well kellen thank you so much we really appreciate having you on hope to have you on again soon talk a little more soil fertility you're listening to ag phd radio we'll be right back
1: Introducing Kyber Soybean Herbicide from Corteva Agriscience, the newest premium Group 15 pre-emergent solution. Kyber delivers three effective modes of action for long-lasting residual activity, meaning your fields won't just be clean—they'll be Kyber clean. And what is Kyber clean? Well, it's a little like nice fields. See the difference at kyberherbicide.com/soy. That's k-y-b-e-r herbicide.com/soy.
2: Do you have a history of white
0: mold or SDS in your bean fields? While you can never predict when disease will occur, using the
1: right seed treatments can reduce your risk of yield loss when it does. Did you know? Adding Heads Up to your seed treatment package brings a proven mode of action that primes your beans so they're ready to fight off disease all season long. Ask your seed dealer to apply Heads Up for protection against both white mold and sudden death syndrome this season. Learn more at headsupst.com. Farmers across the country are
2: raving about Germinator closing wheels. Paul from New York says, I'll definitely be using the Germinator wheels again and will be telling everyone I know. For more Germinator success stories, visit farmshopmfg.com.
0: Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at AgPHD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of AgPHD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming AgPhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn
1: at agphd.com.
0: Come on in. The Ag PhD Mailbag is about to begin. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. It is time for the Ag PhD Mailbag. We're diving into your agronomic questions here. we get got a bunch that came in via email, and that address would be radio at agphd.com. You can also call. Our phone lines are wide open here, 844-44-AG-PHD, if you'd like to get a question in. Uh, start off with Brandon here, and he said, "Hey guys, uh, listening to your show about nitrogen stabilizers, uh, you, you seem to focus quite a bit on leaching. I'm in Western Nebraska. We don't get much rain here. I'm more concerned about volatilization. I uh, can't get all my nitrogen out with the planter in two by two for corn, so I'm coming back a few weeks after." Uh, surface applying some 32% nitrogen with a little bit of ammonium thiosulfate with drops from the sprayer. Would you recommend a stabilizer for nitrogen in this application? You know, a lot of times we we do see some benefit from the ammonium thiosulfate. It's not perfect. It's not the greatest stabilizer at all. But many farmers are saying, you know what? I'm just going to go with that and that's it. Uh, now Brandon says, if you do recommend a stabilizer, what type of product would be best? If you are putting a stabilizer with liquid nitrogen. Use something that's got NB, N-B-P- in it. Uh, Products like Agrotane I think was one of the first ones that uh, was widely talked about. NBPT has been proven for many years to be helpful. Uh, There are plenty of other products out there on the market, but that would be a good place to start. And then Brandon says, hey, if I dilute the UAN with water, would that help reduce volatilization? I don't think so. I think you're just going to end up spreading things out more and I don't know that it's going to necessarily make it worse, but I don't think it's really going to make things better. Hey, thanks, Brandon. Really appreciate it. I mean, if you put a lot, a lot of water out there and soaked it down into the soil, that would be a different story. Like you got a big rainfall then absolutely. But I don't think if you're just putting 10 gallons or 15 gallons out there and put 10 or 15 gallons of water with it, it's going to make much difference. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that. Uh, let's see next one here. Uh, this one comes in from Adam and he said, uh, Thanks for, for what you guys are doing. We are looking forward to hearing your show daily and uh, we got some samples we want you to take a look at. These are wood ash samples. This' is a byproduct of wood burning power plants. and I'm using a tremendous amount of poultry litter, but I'm going to run short on a few farms that are going to soybeans this year. I've been putting on this wood ash at three tons per acre to get my potassium needs. Now in the past, it's been a great source of potassium and calcium and it's got a huge amount of carbon. This year I've been sampling it more to know exactly what I'm applying each farm. Hey, good job on that, Adam. That's a, that's a good move. He said, I've got some questions now around my findings. All right, so we got a couple of samples here. He said, I'm wondering, there's a lot of aluminum in there. Is that going to be a problem for me going forward? Okay, uh, so thanks for the samples, and thanks for the question. Really appreciate that. Adam's in Virginia, by the way. Uh, so it looks like... Uh, the aluminum is at a one and a half percent basis, roughly. So roughly 30 pounds per ton. Normally, you know, depending, I don't have a soil sample here too, Adam, but uh, in soils, when you get down in the fours for pH, then aluminum availability is really high. But when you've got a neutral pH, say you're around a seven, uh, aluminum availability is pretty low. So we don't normally see an issue with aluminum out in in fields but uh, it's something to watch long term you made some comments here other people have been doing this for a while so yeah I I don't think that's a huge issue I don't think that's a huge amount especially if this is kind of a one and done kind of thing you're normally going to be putting out litter but yeah if you're going to use a lot more of that I I think at some point that could be a problem but as long as your pH stays neutral you're going to be fine Uh, it's interesting I was talking with with Rob Fritz who's uh, one of the agronomists we work with occasionally Rob's on the show Rob Rob talks about potash like this he said well it was potash was just the ash from burnt things in the pot that's where it came from so uh not surprising here you go you got uh um the ash here from wood burning plants and it's got a lot of potassium in it. So yeah, it looks like a lot of potassium. The, the bigger thing for me is I'm just looking at how much calcium is in there because per ton you're getting 123 pounds of calcium. So a three to one ratio with the potassium. So I would just watch your soil test. We'd recommend taking a complete malic analysis and then seeing where you're at on the soils. If you need more calcium as well. This looks like a pretty decent source of fertility. Hey, thanks for the questions, really appreciate that. Uh, Next one here, we got uh, Geronimo had called in and he said, I'm planting list beans. I intend to use the three pre-program and plant my beans in 30 inch rows. On my first post-emerge application, I plan to add dual in, which is a group 15 for extra residual control. If I need a second post-emerge application, which normally would be uh, later in June, would I need to put on another residual product, and if so, how much? All right, well, thanks for the question, Geronimo. Normally, no, we're not putting another residual on with the second post-emerge application if we've already put the three pre's down and an. Uh, residual with that first post-emerge pass. Normally that's enough to get us to crop canopy. Now if we've got an issue where we can't get to crop canopy, uh, really the only one I could think of is that we're in a drought, uh, then you might have to consider something else. But in that case, if it's not raining, it's going to take moisture to get weeds to grow and it's going to take moisture to get a residual herbicide into the soil to actually kill any weeds. So Even in that situation, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it. So the the big thing here is just, no, I I don't think you're going to need it. I think if you put it out early and get to canopy, that will be a good thing for you. And thanks for the question. We appreciate that. Uh, I got this. Oh, I got got a few things here. Uh, Got one from Jim. And he said, "I, I stopped and saw some of the agronomists you work with. And uh, and the guys were great and gave me some ag PhD gear and just wanted to say thanks. Jim is from Colorado and just passing through. Hey, thanks, Jim. Really appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's it's fun to to see folks that are heading past and especially in the summer we get uh, being in South Dakota we get people heading to Mount Rushmore or uh, to different things or maybe just to our field day and that that will occasionally just pop in and and that's always welcome. We. We like talking to to other farmers and, and just seeing what's going on around the country too. So yeah, thanks for stopping in. We really appreciate that. Uh, I get this one from George over in Bulgaria. He said, guys, you talk about using Zyway fungicide at planting time in corn and getting season long disease control on certain diseases. Do you think that's a good idea for sunflowers? Uh, our application would be two to three inches or I'm sorry, in a two by three. Uh, both sides in the furrow at 3 inches lateral. Okay, George, first of all, Zyway, I don't believe, is labeled in sunflowers, so we can't recommend that. Now, I'm not sure in your country if they've gotten a label. Here's what I've heard, I guess, with Zyway. It works really good in grass crops, and the uptake has been good, phytotoxicity has been low, Uh, it's, it's been a really nice product for grass crops. I don't know that that's the same thing in the broadleaf crops. I don't know that the uptake's the same. There's multiple growing points to protect. There's, there's just a lot more, um, there are a lot more moving parts in the broadleaf crops. So from what I've heard anyway, they're working on it and they may develop a slightly different formulation if they get it done. We'll see. I'm hopeful that they will, because that would be awesome if we could put uh, something uh, for a fungicide in furrow with sunflowers and soybeans and and other broadleaf crops. Because man, we could sure use it. That would be uh, that would be helpful for white mold for other diseases that are going to pop up later in the year. Hey, thanks, George. Really appreciate the question. I got this one from Dave in Michigan. He said, "Guys, uh, I was thinking about some farming myths today, and one I'd like to know the truth about that I heard in the coffee shop." You can't spray Roundup and a foliar feed at the same time because the Roundup will interfere with the absorption of nutrients. I've always heard that, never quite believed it, just curious what you think. Are there some herbicide applications where that could be a real issue? Uh, for reference, I plan on spraying Roundup and Enlist together for a second pass on beans late June, early July, and putting on some manganese or possibly a micro mix at the same time. All right, thanks for the question, Dave. We have uh, certainly done that on our farm. We've looked at that quite a bit. We don't see the Roundup tying up things, but I know there are a lot of scientists that say that it does. Uh, we, we've tried some excessive rates of Roundup and, and not seen a problem. We've followed up with plant tissue testing just to see what kind of nutrient uptake we had, that type of thing, and it's been pretty good. Now, uh, as far as putting out manganese or possibly a micromix, whether or not the Roundup's tying them up, it's often a good idea. I would recommend a complete soil analysis to see where you're at on micronutrient levels. And then if you want, you could do some plant tissue analysis before and after application just to see if you actually got stuff into the crop and if there is a yield response at the end of the year. Hey, thanks, Dave. We really appreciate the question. And thanks to you for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.